Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, and I think this fits in rather appropriately with Jag's testimony, with Tony and Ramel uh, sharing their love for Beth Ariel, their love for the Lord preeminently, and their desire to join with us. All of this sort of fits in here. We've been looking at the Beatitudes, the beginning of Messiah's teaching from the mountainside. And I'd just like us to look at this one verse, verse 7, where it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You know, there are eight Beatitudes. In some way, they're sort of set up like the Ten Commandments, though not exactly, but they're like them. In that the first four or five commandments are commandments that are directed toward God. I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods Uh, Before me, you shall make no graven images of anything on the sea or under the sea or on the land. And and those first, uh, you know, keep the Sabbath day holy and worship the Lord, all those kinds of things. And so the first part has to do with one's relationship to God. The second part of the Ten Commandments has to do with if your relationship with God is right, well, then your relationship with others will also be in place. The Beatitudes are like that. Just take a look at this with me for a moment. You look in verse 3, 4, and 5. He mentions, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who meek. And then verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Those first four Beatitudes have to do with our relationship to God. It has to do with our need. We have a need to recognize our poverty of spirit. How spiritually we are dead. We walk around, we're alive to one another, but to the Lord, until he grabs hold of us by his spirit and through what Messiah has done for us, we are dead in trespasses and sins, the scripture says. So we need to recognize our utter poverty of spirit. We are alienated from the living God. It's not until we recognize that need that we can move to the next step. The next step is that when we recognize our need, we're moved to mourn because of it. When we take genuine inventory of just what we are like before God, we mourn that position. We mourn that uh, place that we are at. And when we mourn that, it moves us to be humble before God. We recognize our poverty of spirit and we say, Lord, if you could just do something with this need. That very moment, we are moved to humility before the living God of the universe. 
At other times, like Jag was saying, we may have used the Lord's name in vain. But when we recognize our poverty of spirit and we mourn over it, we don't use the Lord's name in vain. We are humbled before him. And when we utter his name, we do so at great reflection. And then once we mourn over our sin and we're moved to humility, we say, Lord, can you make a difference in our lives? In other words, can you fill me with something that will make me alive? And the text says that he would fill us with the righteousness we crave. That righteousness, of course, is not merely good deeds. It's the very righteousness of God himself. Messiah becomes our righteousness, 1 Corinthians says. So these first four Beatitudes have something to do with our relationship to him. We recognize that we're alienated from him. We mourn over that condition. We are humbled before God because of it, and we cry out in our hunger and thirst for him to do something about it, and he does. When he does, it is made manifest by what we do. It's never the other way around. It's not what we do that triggers God to do anything in our behalf. It's what he has done that triggers us to do something in his behalf. And so what is it that we are triggered to do? Take a look at these following Beatitudes. First of all, it ought to move us to mercy. To be merciful individuals. It should move us to be pure individuals. It should move us to be individuals who desire to be makers of peace and not consternation and uh, division. It moves us to endure even the persecution we may experience despite what others might do unto us. So the first four have to do with our relationship to the living God. The remaining four have to do with how that relationship is made manifest in our relationship with others. And this, by the way, is the basis upon which Paul writes all his letters. In the book of Romans, for example, he takes eight, eleven chapters to tell us very deep mysteries of God. He tells us these intricate doctrines and teachings and for what end. And he tells us that we might be in Romans 12 and the remaining uh, chapters, that we might be a living sacrifice, holy before the Lord. So that our life might reflect the very doctrines and teachings we have been privileged to be the recipients of. And so he tells us about the teachings, and then he tells us how those teachings ought to be reflected in our lives. He does this all throughout his letters. In the book of Philippians, it's really quite fascinating because in Philippians chapter 2, we have that great passage that tells us of the emptying of our Lord's divine prerogatives. How he did not consider his eternal majesty to be something that he would grasp hold of, but rather he was willing to relinquish that reality, take upon himself human form, experience the limitations of humanity, and come into our world in order to provide us with salvation, Paul tells us. And then he concludes by saying, and so therefore, we ought to have the same mind of our Messiah. The same way he was willing to relinquish his greatest assets for our need, 
He says, well, then in light of all of these truths, we are to be willing to relinquish our very lives for the benefit of one another as the Lord empowers us to live before him. All of his letters do this. Book of Ephesians does the same. And now as we look at the Beatitudes, Messiah teaches in the very same way. He tells us about our relationship to God. And he teaches us about how that relationship gets initiated and gets completed. And now that it is completed by the infilling of his righteousness, there are expectations about how we ought to live. And the first thing he tells us is that we are to be merciful individuals. Now, let me just say this in verse seven, where he says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. That's a very tricky passage, isn't it? Seems to say that if we don't show mercy to others, we will not be shown mercy to us. Is that really what he says? Well, I think in some sense that is what he is saying. But we need to remember that God's mercy toward us is fully by his grace and it is undeserved. But grace that is received or known is grace or mercy that is shown. Grace that is known or mercy that is known is grace or mercy shown. And so what I think Yeshua is telling us is this. If we've gone through those stages and we've had the infilling of his righteousness, mercy is among those traits of righteousness. And if we show mercy to others, it's because his righteousness, which has mercy attached to it, is now conveyed to us. And if we show that mercy to others, then indeed the Lord in the last day will show mercy unto us. This is not the only place this is found in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, he teaches us the Lord's Prayer. And then he says, if we do not forgive others, our Heavenly Father will not forgive us. He's not teaching that unless we forgive, the Lord won't forgive us. But what he is teaching is, unless we are forgivers that are empowered to forgive because we've experienced his forgiveness, then we are to show forgiveness to others. And if we don't, it says something about the forgiveness we think we may have received. We may not have experienced that forgiveness if we're not forgiving others. Or if we have received that forgiveness, we have not really deeply valued the extent of that forgiveness because we're not willing to extend it to others. He's not saying the way to earn God's forgiveness is by forgiving others. He's telling us that the way that forgiveness will ultimately be received is when, or at least when it is demonstrated, then it is shown that it has been received and there's more forgiveness to gain. And this is what he says here about mercy. Now, there's another tricky thing here. And the question is, what is the difference between grace and mercy? They are related, but they're not the same. In Paul's letters, like to the Romans and Ephesians, he'll greet his readers by saying, grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Yeshua. But here's what's interesting. When you look at the pastoral epistles, Those letters that he wrote to Timothy, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, he says, grace, mercy, and peace. They are distinctive and distinguish in Paul's own mind. 
And when we understand what mercy is, we can see why he included to those who he had called to serve as pastors of different congregations he had established during his ministry. Grace may have defined as unmerited favor. That is to say, God, grace is God's goodness to us, God's favor to us, God's goodwill to us that we cannot initiate by anything we do. It is purely of grace and therefore it is simply conveyed to us. So some have said grace is receiving what we don't deserve. We don't deserve grace, but God conveys it to us by his own loving kindness. Mercy, on the other hand, is a little different. Mercy, some have defined, as not receiving what we do deserve. That is to say, we deserve the judgment of God. But God says, I'm not going to extend my judging judging hand against you. Rather, I'm going to be merciful to you. Grace has to do with receiving what we need. Mercy has to do with being relieved of our misery. Judgment is a miserable thing. Mercy relieves us from the misery of judgment. Grace is the extending of that which we need in order to stand before God. You know, in the past, I used to speak at a lot of different churches. And when I did, it wasn't uncommon that they would say, hey, Gary, would you like to go out to lunch, go out to dinner? We'd like to take you. When they took me out to dinner or out to lunch and paid for the bill, they were gracious to me. Why? Because I really didn't need the meal. It was nice to have, but it wasn't essential. And so therefore, they were extending their kindness, which was unmerited. They didn't have to take me out. They just decided they would. But when I was in the hospital, I'm just saying this because I don't think I've ever been in the hospital except with the kidney stone. And that's another story. But we've already had one medical exploit, so we don't want to go too deeply into the medical world. But if I was put into the hospital, and as Jag was and others were, and individuals come to visit in order to relieve them of their misery, even if it's for a moment, that's an act of mercy. One was a providing for what I may need, The other is a provision for a release of struggle that I was encountering. When you realize that mercy is a release from struggle, now you understand why they're in the pastoral epistles and not in the other letters. Because it's tough work pastoring a congregation. And when you see what Paul instructs Timothy and Titus to do in their congregations, you can see why he says grace and peace and mercy to you guys as you go on your work of ministering to the flock who are oftentimes resistant to your ministering. But let me show you something about this thing of mercy because it comes up in some interesting places. If you open in your Bibles, take a look at Matthew's good news account in chapter 18. This is a section that comes up with forgiving of sin. And it says in verse 21 that Peter came to Yeshua and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? 
up to seven times. Now the rabbis taught that one was only obligated to forgive one three times. Sort of like baseball, three strikes and you're out. We'll give you three forgivenesses, but after that it's over. Now Peter's rather generous. He's doubling the rabbinic method and he's adding one. And so he says seven times. The Lord is going to tell us there's no end to our expectation to forgive. And look at the story that he tells. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, 10,000 talents sounds like a big enough number. I mean, if it's a dollar, that's $10,000. But there are many that can come up with $10,000. But 10,000 talents is more like $10 billion. Because in a person's lifetime, he was fortunate in the ancient world if in his lifetime he earned one talent. He basically was making denarii. But in your entire lifetime, adding up all that you have earned, you'd be extremely fortunate if you earned even one talent. To kind of put it in more perspective, you know, Israel was divided into five regions. You had the area of Idumea in the south. That's where Herod Antipas had come from, Herod the Great. They were Idumeans. They weren't Jews. They were Idumeans. And north of Idumea was Judea. And north of Judea, where Jerusalem was placed, was Samaria. And you remember the Jews and the Samaritans would not have a lot of interaction with each other. And indeed, the Jewish people, the Samaritans, if they or the Jews, if they were traveling through, they would bypass Samaria if they could. They would travel from Judea, go east, cross the Jordan River, go into what was called Perea, and then go north and then cross over into Galilee and bypass all of Samaria. Those five regions, Idumea to the south, Judea just north, Samaria to the north of Judea, Galilee, the north of Samaria, and then Perea to the east of Judea and Samaria. Everybody's with me? Those were five areas that the Romans set up to monitor and to control the land of Israel. They had another region called Decapolis, 10 city region, but that was a Roman, uh, a Roman community. It was from the five regions of Idumea, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and Perea that they forced the people to give taxes. In a year's time, they would be collecting, if everyone gave their taxes as they ought, on the high side, they would collect 500 talents for a given year. This man owed the king 10,000 talents. So when the passage says he was not able to pay, he meant he couldn't pay in 10,000 lifetimes. And he was utterly at the mercy 
of this king? Would he relieve him of his misery of debt? Would he relieve him of the misery of losing his, par- his wife and children in order to pay off this debt? Well, let's see what Yeshua tells us. The servant in verse 26, he falls on his knees before him. He says, be patient with me. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to put my money aside. Just be patient. I'll come up with the money. Well, you know, when he says that, he's just stalling. That's sort of what we do with God, isn't it? Just provide this one time and I won't do that again. Just be patient with me this once and I know I'll turn it around. We're just stalling because we know we can't turn it around. And this man knew he couldn't pay his debt. So he falls on his knees. He says, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. But look at the servant's master. He was merciful to him and he canceled the debt and let it go. And so he says in verse 24, but then what happened? The servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Not even one talent. Not even 10,000 talents or 10,000 denarii. But just one denarii. And he says to him, he grabbed him. He began to choke him. And he said, I want you to pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged him the same words. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. And this was something he could pay back. But the, but the person who was owed the money refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Well, obviously, he couldn't pay the debt while he was in prison. So what did the individual really want? He wanted revenge. He didn't even care about his money. And so the text then says, when the other servants saw what had happened, the other servants, they were greatly distressed. They went and told their master everything. And then the master called the servant and he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had, here it is, mercy on your fellow servant, relief from misery, just as I had on you. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now look at verse 35. Here's the point. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness is a sign of having been forgiven. Forgiven ones are forgiving individuals. And that because our debt before our Heavenly Father is incalculable. And the Lord has said, it is wiped clean. There is no debt we owe to the living God. And no matter how severe the debt might be that we perceive we have inherited from others, it's only a one denarii debt when compared to the 10,000 talent debt we have before the living God. And therefore, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
Why are they merciful? Because they've experienced mercy and therefore can't help but be merciful to others. Take a look at this passage. Look at Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, we have the parable, the story of the Good Samaritan. It doesn't say parable. But we read in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Yeshua. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, what's written in the law? Have you read it? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he said, who is my neighbor? Who do I do not have to be good to and have to love? Who are the exceptions that I can make an account of? So Messiah replies with a story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go down the same road. He saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan, as he traveled, he came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He was merciful to him. And then he took care of him and brought him to a place to take care of him. He paid the cost. What's interesting here is that the two individuals, the Levite and the priest, both have responsibilities in the temple. And perhaps they reasoned, although it's speculation, we don't know what they reasoned because we're not told. But as priests and as Levites who had to serve in the temple, we know that if they contacted the dead, they would be disqualified from serving as they ought to serve according to the Mosaic law. And so one might say, perhaps the reason they didn't stop is because they did not want to render themselves unclean. But here's the thing. Two things strike me about this. The first is this. When a priest became unclean, it wasn't because he was a sinner. There was nothing sinful about becoming unclean. It was a status that could be corrected by staying outside the camp or going through various rituals. It was not a sin to be unclean. It wasn't a sin for the priest to touch the dead body. It just rendered him inoperative as a priest to serve. But nothing sinful about it. But there was something sinful about not loving your neighbor and helping one in need. That is a moral issue. But here's the thing. We may say that and we say, well, the guy had his values all screwed up. But the text, and I just saw this for the first time, the text does not say they were on their way to Jerusalem. If they were on their way to Jerusalem, perhaps we'd give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, they had a service to perform in the temple. They could not be rendered in clean and therefore could not serve in the temple. But the text is clear. They weren't going up to Jerusalem. They were going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. They had finished their services. They had already done what they were supposed to do in the temple. And now to be rendered unclean would not have compromised anything for them. So what was the real problem? The real problem wasn't their 
vocation. It wasn't their service. It was their heart. And so when they saw this man on the side of the road, they didn't even care to investigate the misery he was in and the need that he had. They would rather go on their way. So what were they really concerned about? They were really concerned about being interrupted in their own schedule and were unwilling. This is really kind of a key thought. They were unwilling to submit themselves to the will of God and his plans and purposes for their lives. They may have told some individuals, we'll be down at your place by such and such a time. And if we help this guy out, we're not going to make it. But God sometimes interrupts our plans. We have plans to go to school and graduate here and do this. But God says, I've got something else in mind for you. And we refuse to stop and consider the new direction that he has. And we become like the Levites and priests who refuse to stop because their own plans are more important than God's plan for their life. This Samaritan had to move along. He's in a very dangerous place. He's in Judea. He's not in Samaria. He could be open prey to any Jewish robbers who would like to jump upon him and waylay him and harm him. If there was anybody who ought to have kept going and not stopped for this man, it was the Samaritan. If there was anyone who ought to have stopped, it would have been the religious people who claimed they know God and were doing all kinds of religious things in the name of God. But they were the ones that failed to see God's hand. The other one was willing to take the risk, face the consequences, suffer the loss that he might face, even harm bodily and possibly death for stopping in a dangerous place. But his heart was right with God, Yeshua is telling us. And he showed mercy to one in need. So what does mercy look like? It looks like that Samaritan who stops what he's doing, what he would prefer to be doing, that would be disrupted in his own time frame, that would face and endure possible danger and loss and personal pain and anguish to reach out in kindness to relieve one, if possible, to his misery. He doesn't even chase the robbers down in order to do justice, to find out who was the cause of this. Let's bring these guys to trial. His only concern was this man who is in great need right now. There's another episode that strikes me. I'm taking it from this passage because uh, Thursday night I was up in Santa Clarita and we happened to be on this passage. And I thought, wow, this is just right for what I'll be sharing this morning. And in Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 8, and Luke chapter 5, we have an interesting story of Yeshua healing a leper. And the reason I want to show you this is because all four of these guys, as they write of this account, they do so in a marvelous way. They tell us that there came to Messiah a leper. I'm reading from Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And this leper beseeched Yeshua, kneeled down to him and said unto him, If you will, you can make me clean. Every one of the gospel accounts record that. Matthew says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. 
Luke's account says, Luke 5, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I think it's telling. The man doesn't say, you can heal me. He doesn't say, you can make me whole. But he says the words that were a part of his vocabulary, perhaps from the day he was born. He's a leper. And his responsibility, whenever he was out in public, was to shout out at the top of his lungs, unclean, unclean, unclean. You do that enough times when you come to Messiah, you say, look, I need to be healed. I need to be made well. No, you just say what you've always said. I'm unclean. Can you make me clean? The whole point is this man was in utter misery. And he beseeches the Lord on his knees. Luke says he falls prostrate on the ground. And he says, Lord, he doesn't demand anything of Messiah. He says, if you are willing. He doesn't say if you can, but if you are willing, would you make me clean? Luke's a physician. You read his account, Luke tells us his leprosy was, he was full of leprosy. Matthew and Mark, who are not physicians, they just said the guy was a leper. But Luke said, whoa, 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 hold it. This man is just not a leper. He is unbelievably leprous. He's just full of leprosy from the top of his head to the bottom of his soles of his feet. And he says, if you will, you can make me whole. Now, Yeshua could have done anything he wanted. He could have simply said, I do. I will. And the man would be healed like that. He could have said, I will that you be clean. I will that you be whole. I will that you not have leprosy. He could have said a thousand things to bring this man to healing, but he doesn't. What he does is he touches the man. He reaches for all three Gospels account. He reaches forth his hand to touch him. Because he's showing him his mercy. And not merely, though I hate to say that, his grace. He not only meets his need to make him clean, but he touches him to show him his compassion, his love, and his mercy extended to him. That may have been the first time the man was ever touched In his life. What must that have been like? Even if you're perfectly well to be touched by Messiah, it must be amazing. But to have never been touched by a human soul, and the first person to touch you as Messiah, must have been unbelievable to this man. And it says immediately he was made well. Now, Yeshua in his mercy has a message to be communicated. And so he tells the man, don't tell anyone. Not until you provide a testimony to them. So who are the them that he's to provide a testimony for? His healing would be Messiah's testimony to the them. And the them, he tells us, are the priests that he's to show himself to. And to fulfill the law of Moses regarding healing from leprosy. But the man is too amazed by what he's experienced. As he runs off to the priest, he starts telling everybody. He just can't control himself. 
And isn't mercy received like that? Mercy received is mercy shown. And thus he can't help but share what has just happened to him by the goodness of Messiah. He goes to the priest. And according to the Mosaic law, the priest is going to ask, number one, were you truly a leper? And he'd have to say, yes, I was. Secondly, he'd have to bring in evidence that he truly was a leper by those who knew him. So he didn't go alone. He went with those that came alongside as evidence of his leprosy. And they would have asked them, was this man truly a leper? And they would have said, yes, he was. And then the high priest is instructed to search him, to inspect him from top to bottom. Every area, every crevice, is there any leprosy to be found in this individual? And the moment the high priest recognizes that this is the case, he say the man is clean. And he would then ask the $64,000 question, although that's not all that much money today. And he would say, how is it that you have been made clean? And the man would have said, Yeshua of Nazareth reached out his hand and touched me and willed me to be clean. And then the high priest would make a public declaration. The man is clean and would have to pronounce the means by which his cleansing had been experienced. Yeshua's purpose in healing the man was not only to provide mercy but also to make, put forth his message that he truly is the Messiah. Why? Because in the Mosaic law, we have this section about the cleansing of a leper in the book of Leviticus. And throughout all of Israel's history, there is no one record of any leper ever being cleansed and thereby fulfilling that aspect of the Mosaic law. The rabbi said, because of that, that would be a sign of the Messiah's presence in our midst. He would heal the leper so that this messianic, or I should say this mosaic legislative statement could be fulfilled. The Messiah will bring this about. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures, you've got two lepers that we know of that were healed. You have Miriam, who was struck with leprosy when she complained about Moses being married to a Cushite woman. But that was before the law was given. And we have Naaman the Syrian, who was told to dip seven times in the Jordan, who after dipping was cleansed. But he wasn't a Jew and didn't have to do anything with the Mosaic law. So we have no Jews that are healed of leprosy and fulfilling this messianic commandment until now. <laughs> And the rabbi said, it will be the Messiah who will bring this passage to fulfillment. Even as Yeshua said, came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. No one else could fulfill that law. Only Messiah who would bring about the healing of a leper. And by the high priest's own mouth, Yeshua is Messiah because here the passage has been fulfilled in our lives. Yeshua said, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy is the relief of misery from another. 
It is extended because it has first been extended to us. And because we have received mercy, we are to show mercy. And showing mercy is an indicator of having received it. And having received it, Messiah tells us, in the last day, we will receive more and more of his mercies. So as we go through the Beatitudes, we have to ask ourselves this very hard question. Am I merciful? Who has offended you? That you are to forgive not just seven times, not merely three times, but always without limits. Because we have received 10,000 talents worth of forgiveness. And the worst offense against us is only one denarii worth in the scheme of the eternal dimensions of things. And if we don't forgive and be merciful, we have to ask ourselves an even harder question. Have we really received the mercy and forgiveness of God? And if we have, have we really appreciated it? The way we ought. Because the way we appreciate mercy and appreciate having been forgiven and have appreciated receiving grace is by showing grace to others, by showing mercy to others, by extending forgiveness to others. Those are hard questions, but this is what Messiah is calling us. And not only calling us, but empowering us by his spirit to do. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. And we are grateful for the unmerited kindness you've shown to us in your grace. We're grateful for the unmerited mercy you have extended in relieving us from our misery. And therefore, you have set us in high places. And we are the recipients of all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And so, Father, may we be individuals that can do the supernatural work of mercy in its truest form. Your word doesn't say that those who show mercy will necessarily be shown mercy by others. We know that is not true. For many have shown mercy and their mercy expressed has been spurned. But the text is telling us that if we show mercy, it's an indicator that we have received mercy. And therefore, we are the recipients of even greater mercies to come. Help us, Lord, to truly be a merciful, gracious people that emulate those like the Good Samaritan, that emulate those like Yeshua himself, that relieves us of all of our eternal misery. May we be those that extend some kind of mercy to others that relieves them of the pain that they bear. So we commend ourselves to you for this purpose. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. 
And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.